the British colonial administration was quite anxious to create a particularly exclusive Sikh identity. This becomes very clear from our perusal of uh, the data, the information that uh, Ram Swarup has collated in this pamphlet. And uh, this exclusive Sikh identity, which the British tried to create, uh, uh, they hoped that it would be understood by everybody, including the members of the Sikh community, as distinct from the mainstream of Indic traditions. That is, the spiritual traditions, the cultural traditions, which are indigenous to India, traditions which have originated and flourished on the Indian soil. So that is one. And secondly, as consummate imperialists with clear and substantial colonial interests in India, the British remained highly, highly suspicious of the Sikh community and its political directions. So much so that they could never really regard with any real respect the symbols and individuals from which the Sikh community derived its pride as well as its social, moral, spiritual sustenance, regardless of all the machinations which the British had set in motion in the hope of fomenting a secessionist Sikh nationalism, a strategy which ultimately backfired on the British. This, I think, is especially important in the context of today's politics and today's sociocultural dynamics. I am very glad to connect with all of you once again uh, to be here on the platform of Sangam Talks. So, as you can see, the topic of today's discussion is uh, a pamphlet written by uh, Sri Ram Swarup, noted author and even uh, some would say a mystic. Uh, Ram Swarup ji had written this particular pamphlet back in 1985, it's titled Hindu Sikh Relationship. Uh, as it so happened, I uh, discovered this particular work uh, two years back while I was going through Sita Ram Goel's works mainly. Uh, I happened to have translated some of his works. Uh, and uh, uh, this particular pamphlet, uh, I felt, was not uh, very well known to many people. And uh, uh, therefore, the primary goal of this talk uh, today uh, is to reintroduce uh, this pamphlet, uh, Hindu Sikh Relationship, to those who had perhaps once read it, but uh, in a major way to introduce it uh, for the first time to many people who might not be aware of the existence of this, uh, this work by Sri Ram Sarupji. So let me begin by giving an overview of the contents that we can encounter during this talk. So I will start with a brief description of the contents uh, in this work, what this work is all about. Uh, it actually starts off with an introduction, a very well-written introduction by Sita Ram Kuevchi. And uh, it goes on to describe uh, the uh, phenomenon that Sikhism is uh, in the larger uh, dynamics of uh, the Bhakti movement in the medieval times. Uh, and uh, this sort of provides the historical and uh, socio-political context of Sikh spirituality and not Sikh politics, uh, so to speak. Uh, we will come to that part uh, at, uh, at a more appropriate juncture. And uh, uh, when we actually go into the writing of Ram Swarup after uh, an introduction by Sitaram Goel, we get to see how uh, a community gets politicized uh, 
by British policy. Now, this is not a one-off phenomenon. Uh, it is not that uh, the British had focused entirely on the Sikh community. It had done similar kind of politicization with several other communities in India uh, during the entire uh, career of British colonialism uh, in this subcontinent. But uh, for the purpose of this talk, for, for the purpose of uh, uh, highlighting the importance of uh, Sri Ram Swaroop's uh, Hindu-Sikh relationship, this particular pamphlet, it will be very, very important to see how uh, both Sitaram Goel and Ram Swaroop uh, delineate, uh, describe, and explain, interpret uh, the impact of British policy, colonial uh, British administration's policy on uh, the Sikh community in particular and the Hindu society in general. And uh, I will also try to uh, describe uh, how uh, a three-pronged approach uh, was taken by the British policymakers, administrators, uh, where uh, roles, specific roles were played by scholars, uh, the British army, and the Christian missionaries who came along with uh, the colonialists, uh, or maybe even before the colonialists, and prepared the ground for uh, colonialism in the subcontinent, as it happened in other parts of the world as well. So uh, looking at this three-pronged attack, uh, we will be able to understand uh, Sri Ram Swaroop's uh, explanation, interpretation of uh, the impact of British policy on uh, the Sikh and Hindu communities. So, what is this work all about? Uh, if uh, we take a close look at this, we see that it contextualizes the origin of Sikhism as well as the Khalsa within the historical evolution of ideas through movements and political uh, uh, movements, through spiritual movements as well as political. The premises and the arguments of this work by uh, Ram Swaroop are based on uh, his observation of sociopolitical phenomena in pre as well as post-independence India. So he uh, not just interprets history, as he knows it, but also uh, tries to uh, explain the, the uh, political uh, happenings uh, around him at his own time. So he also gives a sort of commentary on uh, the politics of his contemporary times. And most significantly, uh, this pamphlet, Hindu Sikh Relationship, uh, has been uh, a great work of uh, uh, summarizing the entire history of uh, uh, spiritual, uh, sp spiritual movement, cultural movement, as well as political movements uh, in Bharatvarsha uh, from uh, medieval times onwards. And especially from the time when uh, Guru Nanak Dev Ji uh, introduced a new strain of uh, the Bhakti movement in the form of Sikh spirituality. We see when we start reading this uh, pamphlet uh, that it has an, uh, a moderately elaborate introduction by uh, Sita Ramguel. And uh, this introduction really contains a preamble and a summary of the dynamics of Indian history from the 15th century onwards, including region, regional manifestations of the Bhakti movement. So Sita Ramguel actually describes how the 
bhakti movement manifested in different parts of the country and there in, in this sort of collage of uh, different manifestations of the movement he locates the specific role of the uh, phenomenon of sikh spirituality the history of sikh spirituality and sikh politics through the mughal era in particular and also uh, in uh, the british colonial era uh, in much more detail are described uh, in this uh, pamphlet and uh, uh, this pamphlet actually achieves the uh, work of identifying that particular point in history when politics becomes dominant and its relationship with the spiritual movement uh, of the sikh community starts to wane this is very very important uh, to understand uh, sikh history in general uh, trying to locate the particular spiritual movement and at what point of time uh, this movement took a very defined uh, political uh, dimension and uh, what were the different stages of that political movement uh, starting with the formation of the khalsa and after uh, the passing away of guru gobind singh ji how uh, the khalsa uh, uh, reorganized itself and asserted through uh, ultimately the uh, great sikh kingdom uh, or even you can call it uh, an empire the sikh empire under the leadership of uh, maharaja ranjit singh and from that point onwards how the british took charge of the destiny of sikh political movement and how it disintegrated into factions and how the seeds of uh, social disharmony and even uh, a sort of uh, dissonance in the spiritual realm uh, were also introduced by the british so all of that has been very well summarized by ram swaroop in this pamphlet hindu sikh relationship so this work also gives us uh, an evaluation of the role of scholarship by the british and sikh scholars in shaping the narratives of sikhism of sikh history of its politics and uh, ultimately of the hindu sikh relationship so ram swaroop uh, through this particular work has given us a very uh, pertinent account uh, a very uh, comprehensive account of uh, the evaluation uh, as per his own understanding of uh, the uh, different aspects that i just mentioned uh, but uh, the focus was on the dynamics shared by uh, the sikh community and the larger hindu finally this work is uh, also majorly about the role of the british colonial administration's policy now uh, let us go into the text uh, proper uh, we'll discuss the introduction uh, by sitaram goel at first and then the observations by ramswaru so sitaram goel starts off uh, with a sort of preamble as i mentioned in the uh, uh, beginning which uh, reads as follows i will uh, read it out uh quote starts six have always been honored members of hindu society hindus at large have always cherished the legacy left by the gurus and venerated sikh gurudwaras no less than the shrines of any other hindu sect there has never been any bar on intermarriage interdining and many other modes of 
intermingling between the parent Hindu society on the one hand and the Sikh community on the other. Hindus and Sikhs share a common cultural heritage and a common historical consciousness of persecution suffered and freedom struggles fought. In an excellently articulate and comprehensive manner, Sitaram Goel uh, provides us with this uh, uh, summary of uh, the dynamics between the Sikh and the Hindu communities. Especially, I would like to draw your attention to this word, to these phrases uh, towards the end. Um, they share, the Hindus and Sikhs share a common cultural heritage and a common historical consciousness of, uh, and that historical consciousness grows up from persecutions suffered together and freedom struggles fought together. So this is how uh, the introduction begins. Uh, so this can be described as a preamble to the pamphlet Hindu-Sikh relationship by uh, Ramswell. And uh, this also uh, effectively summarizes the arguments that will be elaborated by Ramaswaru later in this document. So the historical uh, context uh, that this introduction uh, explains very well uh, can be understood from this particular uh, quotation, this section from the introduction by Sitaram Guel, where he remarks, Guru Nanak came from a Vaishnava family in that part of the Punjab, which went to Pakistan after the partition in 1947. So he gives us uh, an idea of how uh, Sikhism evolved. And uh, he talks uh, about the uh, very beginning of the uh, community, uh, its spirituality. And uh, that's why he's talking from the uh, times of Guru Nanak Dev Ji. So, Sitaram Gul continues to say that he was born at a time when the sword of Islamic invaders had already swept over the length and breadth of India and done immeasurable damage, not only to the shrines and symbols of Hinduism, but also to the self-confidence of Hindus. This is extremely important to note. Uh, the damage was not just done to the shrines and symbols of Hinduism, but also to the self-confidence of the Hindus of Punjab. The Punjab, along with Northwest Frontier and Sindh, had suffered more heavily than elsewhere. Many Hindus in these provinces had been converted to Islam by force. The rest had been reduced to second-class citizens who could not practice their religion publicly without inviting persecution at the hands of Muslim theologians and tyrants. It was in this atmosphere that Guru Nanak asserted the superiority of his ancestral spirituality as against Islamic monotheism, which had divided mankind into hostile camps and set children of the same divinity at each other's throats. So another important thing to note here is how Sita Rangkowel, through this introduction to Ramsarup's uh, Hindu-Sikh relationship, uh, identifies the main problem uh, which uh, had moved the Hindu community uh, uh, to give birth to a special uh, articulation of its spirituality. And what were the historical conditions for that particular strain of spirituality to take birth? Firstly, he observes that the uh, major symbols of Hinduism 
including the shrines, the temples, and other places of worship, uh, the uh, vigrahas, the uh, murtis, were raised to the ground. And therefore, it was not really possible to, uh, while being uh, under the uh, Islamic rulers and under uh, the sway of the uh, Muslim theologians who were controlling these uh, invaders turned administrators of Punjab, Sindh, Northwest Frontier Province, uh, and many other places, to really uh, express or reassert uh, Hindu thought, Hindu spirituality, with the help of uh, vigrahas, temples, and those symbols. So, uh, Hindu spiritual thought reasserted itself. It found a new way of articulation, of expression, in the yogic and advaitic methods, where the nirakar upasana, nirakar sadhana, uh, are emphasized. So, this is very important to note in uh, the introduction that Sitaram Guruji offers. He continues to say, what Guru Nanak had proclaimed was, however, a part of the Hindu response to the Islamic onslaught. The response was too prompt. While Hindu warriors fought against Islamic invaders, Rajputs, the Marathas, and eventually the Sikhs, they all gave a military response to the onslaught of the different uh, dynasties of Muslim rulers, uh, Mughals being the most uh, significant of them all. Uh, the response was too prompt. While Hindu warriors fought against Islamic invaders on many a battlefield all over the country, Hindu saints and sages created a countrywide spiritual upsurge, which came to be known as the Bhakti movement. The message of this movement, Siddharam Gulji tells us, was the same everywhere, based as it was on the Vedas, the Itihasa Purana, and the Dharma Shastras. The only variation on the central theme was that while most schools of bhakti deepened the spirit behind, their, uh, behind outer forms of worship, some others laid greater emphasis on Advaitic mysticism as expounded in the Upanishads and the various traditions of yoga. The latter schools alone could flourish in the Punjab and the rest of the Northwest, which had been denuded of Hindu temples and where ritual practices were forbidden by the Muslim rulers. It was natural then for Guru Nanak Dev to be drawn towards this school in the course of his spiritual seeking and sing its typical strains in his own local language. As I was explaining, why the resurgent Hindu spiritual thought expressed itself in a particular manner where Niraka Upasana, Nirakar Sadhana, Nirguna Brahma are much more dominant than the Sakara Upasana symbols uh, is this, that uh, firstly, the entire Northwest and particularly the Punjab, uh, as Sitaram Goel points out, uh, were denuded of Hindu temples. There were no Hindu temples. They were all raised to the ground. And uh, therefore, uh, there was also a lot of pressure on the Hindu communities there uh, that they do not practice uh, rituals and they do not go into ritual worship of their uh, uh, deities, of the de devis and the devatas. So the only option left to uh, the Hindu community, which uh, 
uh, found itself uh, at the cusp of a new uh, renaissance, a new birth with the Bhakti movement, with the oncoming of the Bhakti movement, uh, was to express itself through this Nirakar mode of Upasana. And that uh, gave birth to Sikh spirituality. That is how Sitaram Goel explains the historical context of the origin of Sikhism. Now I will go into uh, Ramswarup's, you know, after the introduction, uh, how Ramswarup uh, actually talks about uh, the different forms of British colonial administration's policy in shaping the narrative uh, of uh, Sikhism, of Sikh spirituality, and how it impacted the uh, dynamics of relationship between the uh, Sikh community in particular and the Hindu community at large. In this, uh, a very interesting document is called Developments in Sikh Politics, which uh, came out sometime in the early 1920s. And uh, this was actually uh, a summary of the uh, different political movements that were taking shape in Punjab and also by the Punjabi diaspora in countries like Canada and the US. Uh, during 1900 and 1911. So this report was actually a confidential one. And it was, as you can see, prepared by uh, someone called Mr. D. Petri. He was later uh, given knighthood uh, in 1922 or 25. Uh, and uh, uh, he was actually, uh, at the time when he was writing this report, an assistant director of criminal intelligence uh, you know, of the CID uh, uh, headquartered in Delhi of the government of India, the colonial government of the India uh, run by the British. So uh, in this particular report, it, it has been uh, copiously uh, quoted by Ramsparu in his analysis of British policy, apart from uh, the works by other colonial scholars. Uh, but this particular document uh, is significant in the sense that it actually betrays the anxiety that the British colonial administration had uh, towards uh, the various communities, but Sikh community in particular, because it had tried many means through the British army policy, as well as uh, through uh, the, the policy that it had taken for formulating uh, personal laws, and how to manage the uh, wealth and uh, land of uh, the various Gurdwaras and so on and so forth. And it sort of frustrated the British uh, when it saw that its uh, attempts, though they were uh, bearing fruit uh, in the long term, in the short to middle term, they were not as fruitful. At least they were not to the liking of the British. So uh, this particular document, uh, I would invite you to uh, you know, read this. It is uh, easily available on the internet. Uh, at one time it was confidential, but now it is uh, available in the public domain. So if you read it, you'll be able to understand uh, how actually the British uh, looked at uh, the Sikh community in particular, but also various other communities and how it uh, uh, introduced and practiced uh, the divide and rule policy that we so often speak about. So 
If we go into Ramswarup's analysis of uh, the British policy on Sikhs based on uh, such documents by Petri and by scholars of uh, uh, the colonial era, we get to see that, uh, like I said, it's uh, three-pronged, but uh, I have actually divided it into four parts here. Firstly, the scholarship by British and other European scholars, uh, British administrators, and loyalist scholars. Uh, by loyalist, uh, what Ramsvarup means uh, is uh, that section of the six scholars who were loyal to the British administration, the British colonial administration. And uh, the second part uh, is, of course, the army policy during the British era, and especially after uh, the 1857 uh, rebellion, or as we call it, the first war of independence, uh, the number of uh, uh, the Sikh recruits increased drastically after the 1857 uh, rebellion. And uh, there were also uh, many new introduction, uh, many new uh, uh, strategies taken by the British to influence the opinions of the Sikh community uh, and uh, and to uh, create them as a distinct uh, nation. So we will get into that. Uh, but the third part here was the attempts to link Sikhism with Abrahamic religions by downplaying its organic relationship with Bharatiya traditions. This was mainly done by the scholars and uh, some colonial administrators who were writing reports, such as Petri himself. Uh, they often lamented the fact that uh, some of these attempts to Abrahamize uh, the Sikh uh, spirituality uh, was not bearing as much uh, desirable fruit as they would have liked. And finally, uh, Ramswaru also uh, threw some light on uh, the activities of the Christian missionaries through scholarship as well as proselytization through uh, converting people into the Christian faith. Uh, although uh, Ramsvarup's analysis does not go uh, as deep into the missionary activities as it has gone into uh, the scholarship aspect uh, and the army policies. So we'll go into this uh, uh, scholarship aspect first. Ramsvarup names the scholars who took part in the project of building a pro-British and anti-Bharatiya narrative through scholarship. And uh, these are Max Arthur McAuliffe, uh, the person who had partially translated uh, the Guru Granth Sahib and had also prolifically written on uh, uh, his understanding of Sikh history. Then uh, Thomas Patrick Hughes, another uh, uh, British uh, scholar who had prepared the Dictionary of Islam. And very interestingly, he had devoted a lot of uh, pages on Sikhism in this uh, Dictionary of Islam. And uh, Ramsaru uh, goes into the details of this entry on Sikhism in this dictionary and uh, analyzes why uh, Hughes had taken so much pains to explain and situate Sikhism within Islam. Uh, another scholar uh, who Rapsburg mentions is uh, Dr. E. Trump, who was actually a German Indologist, and he was also a Christian missionary. But uh, although uh, Trump was uh, 
employed by the British to find out the fault lines specifically in uh, Sikh spirituality and uh, the Hindu spirituality and or at large the Indic traditions. Uh, Dr. Trump was uh, unsuccessful. He clearly stated that uh, uh, it was impossible to find such uh, clear fault lines, uh, fundamental fault lines, and that the differences are mainly external uh, at the surface level. Uh, apart from these uh, chief uh, individuals, uh, we also get various reports prepared by officers of the British colonial administration, and some of these scholars were administrators as well as scholars. So apart from McAuliffe, Hughes, uh, uh, people like McAuliffe, Hughes and Trump, uh, they were administrators, British administrators uh, from the colonial era who themselves took up the uh, task of doing scholarship on uh, Sikh spirituality and other strains of Indic spirituality. And then there were, of course, the uh, so-called uh, loyalist scholars and authors, by loyalist, as I explained, Ramsworth means those uh, among the Sikh scholars who were loyal to the British administration. So Ramsworth observes that the seeds sown by the British began to bear fruit, uh, seeds of division sown by the British. In 19, in, sorry, in 1898, uh, Kahan Singh, uh, the chief minister of Nabha and a Pakka loyalist, wrote a pamphlet called Hum Hindu Nahi Hai, We Are Not Hindus. This note, first struck by the British and then picked up by the collaborationists or the loyalists, has not lacked a place in subsequent times, writings and politics of subsequent times, leading eventually in our own time to an intransigent politics, leading to a politics of intolerance. Ramsawood continues to remark, but that the Sikhs learn their history from the British uh, is not peculiar to them. This is not a peculiar phenomenon uh, confined only to the British, uh, only to the Sikhs. We all do it, Ramsarup says. With the British, we all believe that India is merely a land where successive invaders made good and that this country is only a miscellany of ideas and the peoples. In short, a nation without a nomos or spiritual or personality or vision of its own. So we all know about the uh, infamous uh, Aryan invasion theory or its later uh, version, uh, namely the Aryan migration theory, which basically posits Indian history as a series of successive uh, invasions by foreigners and uh, sees the Indian uh, society and uh, mainly the Hindu society as a sort of uh, salad bowl, a, a mixture, a confused mixture, a hodgepodge of different communities, races, as the Indologists uh, have called, uh, including uh, the neo-Indologists, if we can describe them by that name. So this was not a particular to uh, the Sikhs that uh, they were painted uh, as a victim of uh, uh, this this sort of uh, series of invasions, and uh, therefore they are merely, uh, you know, a, a part of uh, what has been quite normalized by Indologist scholarship, uh, especially the British Indologists. Uh, 
So uh, the fact that many uh, members of the Sikh community fell for this narrative uh, is uh, something of a phenomenon which is observable across the Hindu society. There are many people within the Hindu society who fall for this uh, narrative and, and uh, sort of start hating themselves and their ancestors as well as their customs, their religion, their culture uh, for the present uh, uh, maladies of the Indian society, for all of its uh, uh, maladies. And uh, uh, they end up uh, blaming uh, only uh, the Hindu religion and uh, Hindu spirituality, Hindu sociology for uh, all the things that are bad in India. And nowadays it has become a trend to also blame uh, some of the global phenomena uh, such as racism uh, on uh, Hinduism, very peculiar. So this is not uh, peculiar uh, to the Sikhs who fell for uh, the British Indologists weaving of the narrative of uh, successive invasions and the melting pot society that India is and therefore uh, it is not a land, it is not a civilization with a distinct personality, with a distinct spirituality uh, and a distinct worldview. Ramsparu also reports in this uh, pamphlet, namely the Hindu-Sikh relationship, that it was a concerted effort uh, in which the officials, the scholars and the missionaries all joined. The officials, he of course means the colonial administrators. In order to separate the Sikhs, they were even made into a sect of Islam. Like I was mentioning while discussing uh, Hughes and his Dictionary of Islam. For example, one Thomas Patrick Hughes, who had worked as a missionary for 20 years in Peshawar, edited the Dictionary of Islam. The work itself is scholarly, but like most European scholarship, it had a colonial inspiration. The third biggest article, and this is particularly funny, the third biggest article in this work after Muhammad and the Quran is on Sikhism, Ramsuri writes. It devotes one fourth of a page to the Sunnis, one fourth of a page to the uh, uh, Sunnis, who are the largest sect within Islam, but devotes 11 and a half pages, as many as 11 and a half pages to the Sikhs. Probably, Ramsuri writes, the editor himself thought it rather excessive, for he offers an explanation to the Orientalists who, Ramsol quotes from the editor of this dictionary, may perhaps be surprised to find that Sikhism has been treated as a sect of Islam. Unquote. Then Ramsol continues, indeed, it is surprising to the non-Orientalists too, for it must be a strange sect of Islam where the word Muhammad does not occur even once in the writings of its founder, Guru Nanak But the inclusion of such an article in the present work seemed to be most desirable, as the editor says. And Ramsuru very correctly points out that it was a policy matter. It was a matter of British colonial administration's policy to devote uh, such a huge space uh, within a dictionary of Islam to Sikhism, as many as 11 and a half pages, while the Sunni sect gets only half a page. 
or one fourth of a page, even less. So, as per Ramsum's analysis of uh, this policy with regard to scholarship or through scholarship, uh, the influence of scholarship is silent, subtle, and long range. That is true. The influence of scholarship is silent, subtle, and long range. It always targets uh, the long term impacts on a particular society which it is studying through anthropological, sociological, and historical studies. The scholars aim to create, uh, the Indology scholars in particular, aim to create seeds of division and that has uh, borne its fruit. Now, coming to the British army's policy, uh, Ramsar tells us that Macaulay and others provided categories which became the thought equipment of subsequent Sikh intellectuals. So the scholarship of uh, people like Hughes or uh, Trump or Macaulay, uh, not Macaulay, by the way, not Lord Macaulay, not to be confused with the person who had introduced the infamous Minutes on Education in 1835, but this is another scholar who devoted uh, his energies, his focus, uh, particularly on to Sikhism. Macaulay and others provided the categories through their scholarship, which became the thought equipment of subsequent Sikh intellectuals. But, Ramsar continues to tell us, the British government did not neglect the quicker administrative and political measures. They developed a special army policy which gave results even in the short run. While they disarmed the nation as a whole, they created privileged enclaves of what they called martial races. And the Sikhs were one of these martial races as identified and categorized by the British. The British had conquered the Punjab with the help of the Purabia soldiers, soldiers from uh, UP, present day UP and Bihar, and even uh, from Bengal, some of them. Many of them were Brahmins, these Purabia soldiers, many of them were Brahmins, but they, they played a rebellious role in 1857. So the British dropped them and sought other elements because uh, the majority of the Purabia soldiers uh, had rebelled against uh, their British masters. So the British thought that these are uh, uh, charlatans and these are troublemakers. Therefore, let's drop them and induct uh, the martial uh, sects, the martial communities, namely the Sikhs uh, and some other communities uh, from the hills, uh, with the hope that the Sikhs will be loyal soldiers and loyal subjects. The Sikhs were chosen by the British in 1855. There were only 1,500 Sikh soldiers, mostly Mazabis, a particular uh, caste within the community. And he continues to tell us, Ramsul uh, continues, uh, and I quote, in 1910, from that particular statistic that we have shared in the previous slide, we see the drastic change. In 1910, there were 33,000 out of a total of 174,000, this time mostly Jats, just a little less than one-fifth of the total army strength. So within a matter of 50 to 60 years at most, there is a huge upsurge in the numbers of the uh, Sikh soldiers within the British Army. So this uh, tells a lot about 
the changes in British policy, in, in particular, uh, the policy of the army and recruitment within the army uh, as uh, an impact of the 1857 rebellion or the first world of independence. Their very recruitment was calculated to give them, uh, the Sikhs, a sense of separateness and exclusiveness, Ramsuru tells us. Only such Sikhs were recruited who observed the marks of the Khalsa. They were sent to receive baptism according to the rites prescribed by Guru Gobind Singh. Each regiment had its own granthis or the readers uh, or uh, in a way priests who could uh, do the chantings and readings from the Guru Granth Sahib. The greetings exchanged between the British officers and the Sikh soldiers were Wahe Guruji Ka Khalsa, Wahe Guruji Ki Fateh. Very strange. A secret CID memorandum, uh, as uh, we have already mentioned, prepared by D. Petri, who was assistant, assistant director of the criminal intelligence uh, in 1911. Uh, the report, uh, which was prepared in 1911, says that every endeavor has been made to preserve them, meaning the Sikh soldiers, from the contagion of idolatry. Idolatry is the name that the colonial missionaries together had given to Hinduism. So this is a very pertinent observation made by Ram Swarup in his pamphlet that through the special uh, favors given to the Sikh community in terms of recruitment into British army, the British had hoped to win the favor of the uh, Sikhs. And uh, secondly, this was first and secondly, they had also tried to make a distinct identity uh, of the of the Sikh community as a martial race, separate from Hindus at large. Ramsar continues to tell us, thanks to these measures, the Sikhs in the Indian army have been studiously nationalized. That term is important. This is McAuliffe uh, reporting. So McAuliffe observed that Sikhs in the Indian army had been studiously nationalized because of these measures taken by the British army. About the meaning of this nationalization, Ramsar tells us, we are left in no doubt. Petri, uh, that assistant director of the criminal intelligence, explains that it means that the Sikhs were, quote unquote, encouraged to regard themselves as a totally distinct and separate nation. No wonder, Ramsar now analyzes that the British congratulated themselves and held that the preservation of Sikhism as a separate religion was largely due to the action of the British officers, as a British administrator put it. So uh, they were uh, very happy that the policies uh, adopted by the British army were bearing fruit, at least uh, in the immediate uh, result, as was seen by uh, the recruitment of the six in large numbers in the British army. Now, if you look at the uh, very careful politicization of uh, this community by the British, uh, following Ramsarut's observations, we find that uh, the British also work on a more political level, apart from just uh, recruiting uh, more and more six into the British army or using colonial scholarship, missionaries, uh, to influence the narrative, 
the, the British were also trying to politicize the community itself. Singh Sabhas were started, manned mostly by ex-soldiers, people who had retired from the British army. These worked under Khalsa Diwans, established at Lahore and Amritsar. Later on, in 1902, the two Diwans were amalgamated into one body of the chief Khalsa Diwan, providing political leadership to the Sikhs. They all wore the badge of loyalty to the British. So these were chiefly the loyalists, as Ram Swarup describes. As early as 1872, the loyal Sikhs supported the cruel suppression of the Namdhari Sikhs, who had started a Swadeshi movement. As early as 1872, the Namdhari Sikhs had uh, started uh, a very uh, indigenous uh, sort of movement, the Swadeshi movement, as Ramso calls it. And this was suppressed by the loyalist Sikhs, cruelly. They were described as the Namdharis were described as a wicked and misguided sect. The same forces described the Ghadarites, the members of the Ghadar party, in 1914 as rebels who should be dealt with mercilessly. Tamsul also observes, these organizations also spearheaded the movement for the de-Hinduization of the Sikhs and preached that the Sikhs were distinct from the Hindus. The emphasis was on the distinction of the Sikhs as a separate nation, as a separate people with a separate culture and religion. Ramsar continues, anticipating the Muslims, they represented to the British government as far back as 1888, that they be recognized as a separate community. They expelled the Brahmins from the Harmandir, the Golden Temple, where the latter had worked as priests. They also threw out the idols of quote-unquote Hindu gods, Ramsar tells us, from this temple which were installed there. So uh, in this uh, connection, Ramsar actually does a bit of archival work for his research and retrieves a letter from the newspapers. Ramsar tells, a student, Beer Singh, in a letter to Khalsa Akbar, uh, dated February 12, 1897, tells us of a picture of Durga painted on the front wall of a room near the Dukhbhanjani Bedi in the Golden Temple precincts. The goddess stands on golden sandals and she has many hands, 10 or perhaps 20. One of the hands is stretched out and in this hand she holds a khanda. Guru Govind Singh stands barefoot in front of it with his hands folded, he says, he meaning the student piercing who Ramsuru quotes from this particular edition of the Khalsa Akbar. Ramsuru adds that we do not know, pertaining to that letter, what these gods were and how quote unquote Hindu they were, but most of them are adoringly mentioned in the poems of Guru Nanak Dev. At any rate, more often than not, iconoclasm has hardly much spiritual content. And this is where uh, Ramaswaram actually gives the crux of his analysis of uh, how the Sikh spirituality was attempted to be dissociated from its larger Indic heritage. At any rate, Ramaswaram tells, more often than not, iconoclasm has hardly much spiritual content. On the other hand, it is a misanthropic idea 
and is meant to show one's hatred for one's neighbor. In this particular case, it was also meant to impress the British with one's loyalty. Hitherto, the Brahmins had presided over different Sikh ceremonies, which were the same as those of Hindus. And in this case, uh, Ramswarup again uh, digs out a particular letter uh, in the newspapers uh, of uh, the late uh, 19th century, where there is a mention, uh, as uh, Ramswarup describes, of uh, the Shraddha ceremony of Guru Arjan Devji. Towards the end, uh, I think on the last day of the month of Bhadu. So uh, there was now a tendency to have separate rituals, Ramsar says. In 1909, the Ananda Marriage Act was passed by the British. So through rituals, through separate ceremonies, through separate symbols, and the uh, highlighting of this constant uh, separateness, the British were trying to politicize and uh, give a distinct uh, identity of a separate nation to the Sikhs, as per Ramswarup's analysis. Ramswarup also says that the British played their game as best as they could, but they did not possess all the cards. This is where he begins to uh, delineate, begins to identify where the British plans uh, failed and how they did not bear the uh, desired fruits as the British had wanted. The British played their game as best as they could, but they did not possess all the cards. The Hindu Sikh ties, Ramsar tells us, were too intimate and numerous, and these continued without much strain at the grassroots level. Only a small section maintained that there was a distinct line of cleavage between Hinduism and Sikhism. But a large section, as the British found, favors or at any rate views with indifference the reabsorption of the Sikhs into Hinduism. This is where Ramsarup is actually quoting uh, Petri, the assistant director of the criminal intelligence of the British administration. They found it sad, they meaning the uh, British colonial administrators, found it sad to think that very important classes of Sikhs, like Nanakpanthis or Sahajdharis, did not even think it incumbent on them to adopt the ceremonial and social observances of Guru Gobind Singh, and did not even in theory reject the authority of the Brahmins. So this is how Petri had lamented in his secret report uh, for the observations that he made of the Sikh politics between 1900 and 1911. Ramsur adds, the glorification of the Sikhs was welcome to the British to the extent that it separated them from the Hindus, but it had its disadvantages too. Mr. Petri found it a constant source of danger, something which tended to give the Sikhs a wind in the head. Sikh nationalism Ramsarup reports, once stimulated, re, once stimulated, refused British guidance and developed its own ambitions. So now it was going gradually out of control of the British. The neo-nationalist Sikhs 
thought of a glorious past and had dreams of a glorious future. But neither in his past nor in his future was there a place for the British officer, as a British administrator complained. Any worthwhile Sikh nationalism was incompatible with loyalty to the British. When neo-nationalists like Love Singh spoke of the past sufferings of the Sikhs at the hands of the Mohammedans, the British found in the statement a covert reference to themselves. This is very important. When they admired, Ramsudu tells us, the gurus for their devotion to religion and their disregard for life, the British heard in it a call to sedition. Sedition from where? Sedition from the British colonial administration and from the subjecthood of the British Empire. So it's important to note here how Ramswarup uh, very uh, insightfully locates the point in time from where the whole political movement of the Sikhs, and this was uh, in, in the uh, beginning of the 20th century, the uh, first few decades of the 20th century, where the neo-nationalist Sikhs, many of whom were young people, and uh, some of whom were actually located outside of India, in the diaspora, in countries like US and Canada, they had started to dream of a glorious future for the Sikhs, which takes its inspiration, which takes its sustenance from the glorious past, as has been uh, described in the records of history for the Sikhs of Maharajanjit Singh's empire, most particularly. And therefore, whenever they spoke, the, the new nationalists spoke of this uh, future ambition, the British uh, became more anxious than anything else. And they saw in such pronouncements a call to secede from the British Empire, which is definitely not what they had intended in the first place. So Ramsarup continues to tell us about this uh, defense against uh, the British policy and how it manifested. Sikh nationalism was meant to hurt the Hindus, but in fact, it hurt the British. So it back, backfired on the British. For what nourished Sikh nationalism also nourished Hindu nationalism. The glories of Sikh gurus are part of the glories of the Hindus. And these have been sung by poets like Tagore and others. I remember at least two poems, two long poems uh, written by Rabindranath Tagore. Uh, one is, of course, uh, the famous Bondi Deer or the captive hero, where uh, Tagore eulogizes the uh, successful attempts at defeating the uh, Mughal tyrants by Banda Bahadur. And the other poem that Tagore had composed, this was also a very long poem and a very sublimely composed poem called Guru Gobind, in which he describes that period in the Guru's life, in the 10th Guru's life, when he was preparing himself for a career of uh, the leader of the Sikh community. So he, in this poem, we get to see how uh, uh, Guru Gobind Singh uh, is talking about a very inspired uh, and high spirituality uh, about his tapasya, about his sadhana to gain power, gain the strength in order to uh, raise the Khalsa army. And uh, until that is done, he continues to uh, shun the worldly life. 
that is how the, the poem uh, describes that particular part of uh, Guruji's life. So, uh, Ramsar continues to tell us, on the other hand, as Christians and as rulers, the British could not go very far in this direction. In fact, in their more private consultations, they spoke contemptuously of the Gurus. Mr. Petri considered Guru Arjun Devji as essentially a mercenary who was prepared to fight for or against the Mughal as convenience or profit dictated. They always spoke of the Gurus uh, in derogatory terms when it suited them, because when they are talking in, in, within themselves, when they are uh, writing secret confidential reports, there uh, we get to see their real uh, uh, sentiments uh, and their real attitude towards the Sikhs for all the uh, pretensions that they had about uh, caring for the upliftment of the Sikhs uh, as a distinct nation in uh, uh, the Indian colony that they were occupying. This is what the British really thought about the gurus and the heroes of the uh, Sikh community. So after describing Guru Arjan Dev uh, in derogatory terms, uh, Petri also continues to talk about others uh, such as Guru Tegh Bahadurji. Uh, he, he, he describes Guru Tegh Bahadurji as an infidel, a robber and a rebel, outrageous, uh, who was executed at Delhi by the Mughal authorities. And Ram Suru rightly points out that as imperialists, the British naturally sympathized with the Mughals and shared their viewpoint. Otherwise, why would uh, somebody uh, describe uh, the champions of the Sikh spirituality uh, the venerable gurus like Guru Arjan Devji and Guru Tegh Bahadurji as infidels and mercenaries and uh, robbers and so on, outrageous words to use. In conclusion, uh, Ram Swarup gives us his observations about how this uh, sowing of the seeds of division by British has impacted the post-independence politics with regard to uh, Sikhs and uh, in particular the Hindu-Sikh relationship, the Hindu-Sikh ties, so social ties, spiritual ties. But from the previous section which we just discussed, two things become apparent and uh, here I am giving my own uh, observations as opposed to uh, the observations by Ram Suru that we have been discussing so far. One, the British colonial administration was quite anxious to create a particularly exclusive Sikh identity. This becomes very clear from our perusal of uh, the data, the information that uh, Ram Swarup has collated in this pamphlet. And uh, this exclusive Sikh identity, which the British tried to create, uh, uh, they hoped that it would be understood by everybody, including the members of the Sikh community, as distinct from the mainstream of Indic traditions, that is, the spiritual traditions, the cultural traditions, which are indigenous to India, traditions which have originated and flourished on the Indian soil. So that is one. And secondly, as consummate imperialists with clear and substantial colonial interests in India, the British remained highly, highly suspicious of the Sikh community and its political directions, so much so that they could never really regard with any real respect the symbols and individuals from which the Sikh community derived its pride 
as well as its social, moral, spiritual sustenance, regardless of all the machinations which the British had set in motion in the hope of fomenting a secessionist Sikh nationalism, a strategy which ultimately backfired on the British. This, I think, is especially important in the context of today's politics and today's sociocultural dynamics uh, with regard to Hindu-Sikh relationship. I think it is uh, incumbent upon all of us, uh, Sikhs, Hindus, to think about, to reflect upon these British policies uh, through the scholars, through the uh, colonial administrators, the British army policy, or through the missionary activities, how uh, the Sikh community has been painted in a certain color and how the Hindu community has uh, also automatically uh, been painted uh, in a particular light. And what are the implications of such uh, portrayal is what we need to closely consider. If we do not do so, then uh, the strife that the British had tried to sow amongst our communities will only grow and that will be disastrous not only for the, uh, for the Indian culture and civilization, but particularly for the Sikh community as well as the Hindu community. Thank you. I will conclude here and invite questions, comments and discussions. So my question is exactly what was referred to in what you have also explained about how and why in the whole backdrop of the Bhakti movement, you have uh, Guru Nanak Ji's teachings also coming in. But we who are not Sikhs have often been told and even taught in history that um, there is a quite a bit of an Islamic influence even in the teachings of Guru Nanak. So again, I'm, I'm not an expert. I've not read the Guru Granth Sahib or, or anything, but this is what we've been told, that it was more like a syncretic religion. And especially in our history, this is how we've been taught. The Sikhism was more like, like that. Whereas here, what you present here is, is a little different from that. And this, there is this feeling even now when we see these, you know, calls for Sikh separatism and all that there is some kind of a leaning that they have towards some Islamic tenets. So if you have any information on this, if you could throw some light on it, that would be very helpful. Thank you. A very pertinent question. Thank you for that. Uh, but not as an expert, uh, rather as uh, uh, an enthusiast, as a reader of uh, Sikh history, Sikh literature. I would like to point out that, uh, and Ramsul has also uh, pointed it out, uh, including Sitaram Goel, uh, that uh, the particular strain, particular manifestation of uh, uh, Hindu spirituality, which saw its resurgence in the uh, Western uh, part of the Indian subcontinent, particularly in Punjab, the influence of the yogic traditions and the Advaita uh, tradition, where Nirakarupasana, uh, 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 the eulogization of the Nirgun Brahma, the focus on Nirgun Brahma, uh, took uh, the central part, the central position. This uh, did not, uh, this, this influence of uh, the yogic and Advaitic traditions were not confined only to uh, the uh, Hindu uh, sadhakas, the Hindu uh, yogis or the uh, members of the Hindu community in general. It also significantly influenced 
Ramsuni and Sitaram Gul informs us, uh, the, some of the Sufi uh, Pasakas or Sadakas. So uh, some of these uh, Sufi uh, uh, individuals have been uh, referred to in the Guru Granth Sahib, uh, such as uh, I think Farid. And uh, thus, uh, the question of syncretism, uh, I would say, uh, takes it a bit further in uh, highlighting the influence of uh, uh, Islam and influence of Sufism, whereas in reality, it is the other way around. It is the influence of uh, Hindu yogic and Advaitic traditions upon Islam, and especially that uh, segment of Islam, which uh, had already started to uh, talk in a bit of a quote unquote liberal way, namely the Sufis. So it was the influence of uh, the Advaitic and Yogic traditions uh, in the Punjab region uh, among the Sufis of that, uh, of that region that enabled the Sikh Gurus to find, uh, to identify the echoes of the same message, the same uh, uh, Advaitic and Yogic messages, uh, the messages of the Hindu spirituality uh, and include them in the Vanis. So that would be my response to your question. I've got two specific uh, comments. I would like you to then comment on that. One, looking at what has been what has been happening in Punjab for the last four decades, it appears that the British have succeeded in dividing the Sikhs and the Hindus. Unfortunately, it has been uh, the sad plight of Punjab, especially during the time of Bindravala and company. In fact, that somebody like that could come up at all. And so much damage was done to the Punjab economy and the people and the psyche. That indicates that British, the seeds sown, shown, I mean, sown by the British are bearing fruit even today. The Khalistanis who are outside Punjab, in Canada or wherever they are, are the fruits of the British, what do you call it, build up, build up of Sikhism being separate. I would like you to comment on that. That's one point. Second, British have done the same thing of you had talked about uh, the Nirankari and what do you call it, uh, non idol worship way of doing things. Okay. Advaita. They had done the same thing in Bengal also, where Brahmo Samaja and other people had come up. And the same thing had been purportedly done in South India also. So this is not something unique to the Sikhs alone, where they tried to demolish the local uh, religious, what do you call, uh, composition. They have tried it all over the country. This is the second point. That's all, sir. Thank you so much, Colonel, for your comments. Uh, regarding the first point that you have raised, and uh, I would only agree with you. And uh, to further uh, the discussion on this, uh, I would like to draw your attention to some of the things that Ramsvarup says, and I, which I could not include in my presentation for lack of time. Uh, uh, and if I may read out uh, some segments 
uh, towards the end of this pamphlet by Ramswarup. Ramswarup says, independence came accompanied by division of the country and large displacement of population. The country faced big problems, but she managed to keep above water. We were also able to retain democracy, but just when we thought we had come out of the woods, divisive forces, which lay low for a time, reappeared. The old drama with a new cast began to be enacted again. Muslim separative politics held by huge Arab funds has become active again. So uh, Ramsop is here talking about uh, his contemporary times, namely the late 1980s. Uh, Christian missions have their own ambitions. They both are looking at the politics of extremist Sikhs with great hope and interest, and they find it fits well with their own plans. So this is a very important observation by Ramsuruk, I would say, that he successfully links the separatist faction within the Sikh community with the attempts, with the, uh, with the troublemaking attempts by uh, Christian missionaries, as well as, uh, you know, uh, the funders from outside of India and sometimes even within India, uh, who are uh, within the large, uh, by and large, Islamist movement. So that uh, establishment of the link between these uh, different uh, centers of trouble, sources of trouble, is important. Ramsar also uh, says when the British showed solicitude for the minorities, so the minority politics becomes a very uh, pertinent thing here. And uh, we need to uh, honestly reflect on the uh, echo of minority politics as practiced by the British in the successive Indian administration uh, post independence and see the implications of that politics, the minority politics, with regard to Hindu-Sikh relationship. Ramsarup says, and I quote, when the British showed solicitude for the minorities, national forces, nationalistic forces in India, resented it and called it a British game. But surprisingly enough, the game continues to be played even after the British left. The minorities are encouraged to feel insecure and aggrieved the minority stick is found handy to beat the majority, namely the Hindus. Hindu baiting is politically profitable and intellectually fashionable. What Ramsar was talking about in 1985-1986 still holds true today. Constantly under attack, a Hindu tries to save himself by self-accusation. He behaves as if he is making amends for being a Hindu. Now, this part uh, is very, very important. In the last two decades, so he's talking about 1960s, 70s, running up to 1980s, another separating factor too has been silently at work. And in my opinion, this holds true even today. Thanks to the Green Revolution and various other factors, a section of the Sikhs have become relatively more rich and prosperous. No wonder they have begun to find that the Hindu bond is not good enough for them and they seek a new identity readily available to them thanks to the scholarship of Macaulay, Hughes and so on and so forth in their names and outer symbols. This is an understandable human frailty. 
Ramsund observes. You have been our defenders, Hindus still the Sikhs, as Ramsund tries to explain this, uh, you know, uh, psychologically, I would say. You have been our defenders, Hindus still the Sikhs, but in the present psychology, the compliment wins only contempt, and I believe rightly. Here, Ramsarup is saying that uh, I believe that this contempt, by constantly uh, repeating this sentiment that you have been our defenders, uh, only draws contempt, uh, and uh, this contempt is rightly placed, Ramsarup says. For self despisement is the surest way of losing a friend or even a brother. It also gives the six an exaggerated self-assessment. Under the pressure of this psychology, then Ramsar continues, grievances were manufactured, extreme slogans were put forward with which even moderate elements had to keep pace. Now, this is again a very psychologically uh, valid phenomenon that uh, within any community, within any society, those who are the most extreme, those who take the most extreme positions, are more clearly heard because of the uh, high ranging decibel sound that they make. And therefore, those who are moderates, th those who are uh, not in agreement with uh, much of the extremist position are also forced uh, because of uh, social ties, because of many other pressures to keep pace with them, to uh, support them. Camps came up. Uh, in India, as well as across the border, where young men were taught killing, sabotage, and guerrilla warfare. Finding no check, it, it, knew, it knew not where to stop, Ramsarup says. It became a law unto itself. It began to dictate to bully. The temple at Amritsar, at a certain point in time, he is referring to the events in, in 1984, an arsenal, a fort, a sanctuary for this extremist section. And this grave situation called for necessary action, which caused some unavoidable damage to the building, Ramsar tells us. When this happened, the same people who looked at the previous trauma, either helplessly or with an indulgent eye, felt outraged. There were protest meetings, resolutions, desertions from the army, aid committees for the suspects apprehended, and even calls and vows to take revenge. The extremists were forgotten totally. There were two standards at work, as Ramsuru points out. There was a complete lack of self-reflection on the part of the moderate sections and the Sikh community in general, and uh, responsible Sikh leaders. So he uh, points fingers at not just the Sikh leadership, political leadership, as well as spiritual leadership, but also uh, to the moderate sections, the general populace uh, within the Sikhs. The whole thing created widespread resentment all over India, which burst into a most unwholesome violence when Mrs. Indira Gandhi was assassinated. Ramsarup reports. The befathers have again got busy and then they explain the whole tragedy in terms of collusion between the politicians and the police. But this conspiracy theory cannot explain the range and the virulence of the tragedy. So he is calling for uh, an attitude of uh, looking at things as they are, looking at things in a very uh, unbiased manner, an honest manner, 
without which there is no hope from the uh, problem, the malady that uh, Ramsuru points out and which you in your comment uh, have also pointed out. That's what I would say. And the second question that uh, you have uh, uh, brought up with regard to the manifestation of Nirguna Upasana, uh, Nidhijakar Upasana uh, with regard to Brahmo Samaj and uh, other such factions, I uh, have my reservations in seeing uh, these two manifestations as part of the same phenomenon. Uh, why? Uh, I will, uh, again, uh, maybe refresh your memory uh, of this uh, fast, uh, this this uh, first part of the talk where I was talking about the historical context within which the Sikh spirituality found its peculiar uh, uh, articulation, because uh, the northwestern uh, part of the Indian subcontinent had been almost completely denuded of temples. And uh, there was uh, no circumstance in which it was possible to hold ritual worship, to use symbols of the Hindu spirituality, that it was, uh, that it gave uh, as the only option, uh, the Nirakara Upasana uh, to evolve there. And that manifested as a Sikh spirituality. But in the case of Bengal, uh, that the case was not so severe. There were many temples, and even though the temples were uh, raised to the ground, they were again built up continuously. Uh, and uh, the Brahmo Samaj movement was rather the manifestation of a newfound uh, confidence of the Hindu uh, community, I would say, uh, in asserting itself at par with the Western civilization. So here the anxiety was that we are by no means less than our Western counterparts. It is unfair for the Western ideologists which, uh, to, to paint uh, Hinduism as uh, out and out idolatrous, uh, as a practice of idolatry and hedonism. And uh, we have more subtle, more sublime aspects to our religiosity, to our spiritualism. And that was brought forth by Raja Ram Mohan Rai and uh, the subsequent leadership of the Brahmo Samaj, like Devendranath Thakur or Rabindranath Tagore and others. So I would suggest that uh, these two phenomena are distinct. The Sikh uh, spirituality as it manifested in uh, Punjab and uh, the Brahmo Samaj uh, uh, and even the Arya Samaj a lot of aspects uh, are new to me. Few I had already uh, heard during one of the conversation. Uh, my question probably would be a mix of what uh, Rama sir said and probably something that you have already covered. So few part could be a bit repetitive. Um, you we speak about uh, Nirgun Upasana in Sikha Samaj, right? And uh, it is not that it is alien to Sanatan. It is already there. But we can understand that for a general public to expect them to do bhakti or upasana of a nirgun brahm is not possible all the time. And that is the reason why we have deities everywhere. Right. Do you think that because and if I look at Sikh and if I look at uh, if I uh, listen to people who are neutral on the term and not very rigid about no murti puja, I could hear that there is an acceptance for both. So. 
none of the sanatan paramparas completely reject any philosophy advaita also doesn't say that you know sagun uh, upasana is not possible it is just that we are not doing that um, so when you look at the current society and taking a leaf from colonel rama's uh, you know point not talking about separatists i'm talking about the general society when you completely reject a way which is more acceptable to the general public do you think that leads to a place where the society does not know where to look and related to this is if you go to punjab you see that is dera culture there and what is dera culture dera culture is where you need a life guru who can guide you which probably is not there in the sikh dharma so when you look at these things and you know taking the point that yes probably the british could not do it or could not persuade the society you know sikh society in the way they wanted then it is happening now and is it happening because it has become very rigid in its own belief where they are rejecting a portion which can be kind of accepted uh, yes absolutely so firstly i would concur with you in saying that uh, none of the indic traditions are rigid as the monotheistic traditions are and in fact uh, in this particular pamphlet itself in the introduction uh, sitaram goel points it out and uh, ram sulu reinforces it by saying that monotheism is the mother of all evil uh, i quote him basically monotheism is the mother of all evil it uh, always divides humanity into two uh, warring factions and then uh, people are at each other's throat so we never saw any kind of uh, uh, you know uh, violence uh, violent uh, clash between uh, the uh, different indic traditions there may be political reasons for uh, clashes maybe one particular uh, king one particular uh, emperor had patronized egoistic uh, um, uh, impulses out of uh, his own ambitions he had uh, made some silly um, uh, actions and you know he had committed some silly actions such as uh banishing some people outside of their territory or uh, taking out a particular vigraha and replacing it with another so uh, never for uh, you know darshanika reasons for uh, the uh, from the point of view of spirituality there was any uh, conflict ever in india monotheism when it is introduced uh, and uh, as i have tried to explain uh how the uh, scholars uh, the colonial scholars especially and then also the loyalist scholars have tried to only emphasize uh, such kind of interpretation which uh, uh, portray the sikh spirituality as a sort of uh, abrahamized uh, monotheistic religion you know with a book uh, sometimes uh, this this is uh, put forth by such scholars uh as saying that uh, you know the difference between uh sikhs and hindus and their religions uh, are quite clear because uh, there is a clear uh, single book for the sikhs uh, namely the guru granth sahib and there is no single book that uh, hindus can claim as the one book uh, upon which the, their religion is based so that is one point apart from that uh, um and also like to point out that uh, uh ramsurup actually talks about this that the different uh, uh sections within the uh six spiritual practice su- such as sahadharis namdhari six uh, and so on and so forth they have been progressively marginalized by the extremists 
and uh, somehow uh, a very perverted form of the Khalsa uh, became dominant. And uh, Ramsuruk also points out that uh, apart from a particular historical point in time, apart from a particular historical exigency, there was little relevance for the Khalsa. When uh, the uh, you know, Sikh empire was established, uh, the majority of the uh, Sikh army of Maharaja Ranjit Singh uh, were constituted by the Khalsa Sikhs. And uh, uh, they were also, uh, you know, uh, soldiers uh, of different nationalities, including some European uh, soldiers as well. But the Khalsa Sikhs uh, constituted the majority in Maharaja Ranjit Singh's army. But once that empire uh, was uh, demolished by, uh, dissolved by the British, there was no historical exigency left. There was no relevance uh, remaining for the Khalsa to continue. And uh, very funnily, uh, the British uh, officials, people like Petrie and so on, they are uh, lamenting the fact that because the Khalsa has lost its relevance after the uh, dissolution of Maharaja Ranjit Singh's uh, empire, many of the uh, former members of the Khalsa are going back into the Hindu fold. They're losing their outer uh, forms of uh, forms, uh, you know, the symbols that separate them from Hindus. And they are also uh, taking recourse to some of the uh, rites uh, of passages and some of the customs that the Brahmins uh, led them uh, in doing. For example, I uh, mentioned a particular letter that uh, Ramsarup had uh, found out from the newspaper archives where uh, the Shraddha ceremony of Guru Arjan Ji was performed. Uh, by Brahmins. And uh, similarly, you know, Namkaran and other samskaras, Viva samskaras mainly, uh, up until the time when uh, the Ananda Marriage Act was passed, I think uh, in the first decade itself of the um, uh, 20th century, 1910 or 1911 maybe, uh, uh, all these rites of passage uh, were as per the Sanatana Vedic rituals. So therefore, there was a very conscious attempt uh, on part of both the British scholars as well as the loyalist scholars as Ramsu describes them to highlight the points of difference, so-called difference, which were not actually difference. You could, you could locate them very well within the uh, Advaitic and yogic traditions. And also uh, the uh, connection, uh, you know, the far-fetched connection with the Abrahamic faiths and most importantly with Islam by saying that uh, this is also a religion of one book and uh, monotheistic, uh, one God and so on and so forth. So uh, this is an unfortunate uh, turn of events uh, that uh, in the present circumstances uh, that dominant section, uh, it still uh, continues to uh, uh, you know, scream at the top of its voice, and it, that that section's voice uh, is uh, represented or misrepresented as the authentic voice of the Sikh community. So, if you just take two step back, uh, uh, there was a recent discussion that happened on the. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Petri report, uh, yes. which was uh, which was commissioned after you know 1857 revolt, and uh, I'm probably not 
uh, able to put it in the right sequence but there were a couple of uh, conclusions that were made one conclusion was that jati system is one of the strongest system that binds india together it is very difficult to divide the people because even if people go from let's say from hindu fold to muslim fold they still carry their jati there and uh, the other was uh, and they did not say caste they said jati as prominently the two was uh, the 1857 revolt happened at every level from people at administrator to to soldiers to local and they said that the perpetrator of this was actually the brahmins this was categorically mentioned there and the third conclusion was no not conclusion the third point was that we have to identify someone who doesn't associate with their jati or is trying to leave that pattern and for that you see that sikh community as a uh, i won't say vulnerable but yes probably one section which proclaims that they don't belong to any jati system so uh, the report and not as a conclusion but says that now you what you have to do is that you have to promote a category that does not associate with the jati system and bring them forward so which means hire them more get them prominent positions keep them distinct don't let them be part of the jati system and three uh find out the fault lines in the society and blame brahmins for that and this is a fantastic report which actually says that how the british understood the problem understood the fault lines identified a solution and somehow came up with this whole problem that brahmins are responsible for everything and also elevate six as you know something which is better than a hindu version so could you speak a little bit about it since you did talk about petro report a little bit so uh, did this all uh, happen after this report was published and if you could elaborate a little on that yeah the circumstances that led to the publication of the petro report uh, were already in place and uh, petro report actually came out in the second third decade of the 20th century but uh, there were previous reports uh, such as the punjab administration report of 1855 to 1860 uh, the circumstances in punjab in uh, that time period which was summarized in that report which uh, basically told uh, the same things that you just described about the uh, jati system and what could be the points of difference between uh, the hindu society and the sikh community in particular but uh, what binds them together the petri report and the previous punjab administration reports is the fact that uh, both are lamenting in a in a very clear manner that uh, as soon as there is no historical exigency for the khalsa to continue to draw its sustenance from the sikh and the hindu community you know non khalsa sikh and the uh, hindu community at large uh, they they are uh, dissolving back into their hindu fold and uh, in this case uh, you know i think petri uh, uh, specifically mentions uh, a parallel between the phenomenon of how buddhism uh, which was a very the uh, prominent religion in india at one point in time but it was absorbed back within hinduism uh, uh, that same kind of phenomenon is repeating with respect to the sikhs the, the, the sikh religion and the sikh community uh, and uh, you know funnily uh, petri describes hinduism in this connection as the boa constrictor as the ajagar of the indian jungles which actually uh, you know gobbles up all the uh, sects all the communities all the religions that were originated from the uh, indic traditions from on the indian soil 
So uh, yes, I, I think uh, a thorough perusal of uh, the Punjab administration reports as well as the Petri report would reveal a lot of things which uh, should be brought in focus and uh, which should be discussed freely by both Sikh scholars as well as uh, you know the general public among Sikhs and Hindus. Shriji uh, ji, the British have been so systematically following the divide and rule policy. Not only in India, I'm sure they would be doing it in their other colonies also. So over the centuries, have they been openly called out about this in academia or criticized about this? And if so, where? Yes, uh, you know, the one part of this uh, uh, critique has come out of Africa and most particularly from the Anglophone parts of Africa, meaning the parts in Africa, the African continent, which were under the British uh, uh, rule, British colonial rule, because there were other European nations also, which had, uh, you know, subjugated uh, several uh, African nations. So from Nigeria and from Kenya, uh, two countries which were subjugated by the British colonized, uh, we see very powerful voices uh, in the forms, not only in the academic uh, forms, but also in artistic forms, through literature, through drama. We have found how a very good documentation of this divide and rule policy is depicted, you know, and uh, the psychological uh, cognitive dissonances that were sown by the British because of uh, the missionary activities to begin with and then colonial uh, uh, officers' uh, activities. These were wonderfully shown by uh, the African scholars and African literatures, authors. I would like to mention uh, a particular novel, uh, Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe, the great Nigerian uh, uh, novelist, uh, where he describes through this novel how a very well-structured, close-knit community uh, of uh, indigenous people in, Af in Africa, in, in Nigeria in particular, can be devastated. And that uh, impact of the devastation uh, lasts and continues to work through generations, not just for one generation or two generations, but for successive generations. In, in fact, uh, this particular novel, uh, Things Fall Apart, was uh, followed up by Achebe with two more novels, uh, Arrow of God and uh, the other one I cannot recall right now. Uh, these three actually depict the devastation across generations of the divide and rule policy. And we get to see the same uh, you know, devastation still at work with the Nigerian society being torn apart by all these conflicts between Christians and Muslims, you know, the Boko Haram and so on and so forth, who are killing Christians. And then the Christians are, uh, uh, trying to proselytize more and more people. And, and uh, you know, some people have a very strong decolonizing uh, strain within them, especially in Kenya, uh, which are trying to come out of the influence of Christian missionaries. And then there is uh, uh, some political machination going on there uh, with, uh, with regard to declaring them as rebels, as outlaws, and so on and so forth. So the case of uh, Kenya, Nigeria, and other African nations, uh, and the documentation by academics as well as uh, literary activists, dramatists, um, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, are very good cases in this regard. Uh, the other novel that you mentioned could have been The Heart of Darkness, which is about the Spanish rule over there. Uh, 
no 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 heart of darkness is uh, actually uh, you know written from a, a more colonial perspective uh, because it is joseph conrad who writes it yeah. and there he uh, actually uh, orientalizes africa if i can use the term you know he he basically describes africa as uh, the heart of all darkness that can exist in the world and all light is centered upon uh, uh, europe and especially in england so uh the other novel is actually also by jim achebe it's actually a trilogy uh, arrow of god uh things fall apart and no longer at ease yes that is the name no longer at ease this trilogy is uh very very telling and also i would like you to look at the works of the uh, kenyan academician uh, author uh, uh ngugi wa thiongo who talks about decolonization at length in his book De- decolonizing the uh, mind uh, these works and many other works by uh, lusophone uh, portuguese speaking africans uh, francophones or the french speaking africans they have uh, really uh, they have done a very good job of documenting the trauma and the devastation of the divide and rule policy sir could you please bring out the classic differences in belief systems and traditions between the various sects of sikhs such as namdharis sahajdharis nirankaris radha swamis nanak panthis damdami taksal das panthi and others please nandakumar uh, ji i have to draw a blank here i am not an expert in the sikh uh, 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 different sects uh, within uh, the sikh traditions uh but i would uh, you know uh, make a small comment here uh, because of my perusal of uh, sitaram goel and uh, ram swarup's uh, descriptions of sikh spirituality and indian traditions in general that the uh, uh the khalsa sikhs and the other sects that you have mentioned they are differentiated by uh, some of the samskaras that are still practiced by uh you know the other uh, sects you know uh, as opposed to the khalsa sikhs and uh, there is no anxiety so to speak among these other non khalsa sikh uh, sampradayas uh, with regard to the taking of names of god in uh, uh, you know the indic terms and especially with hindu imageries hindu uh, symbols from the itihasa purana lores and uh, there is as such no uh, no emphasis on differences rather there is uh, uh, always uh, you know uh, an attitude of being at ease with uh, the larger indic traditions and that is what is very very apparent very clear uh, very visible from outside but uh, if you ask me to go into the nuances and uh, Uh, particulars i'm afraid i'll have to draw a blank so maybe uh, uh, some uh, sikh expert and if you uh, in this in this regard i would like to mention uh, the name of uh, a very senior and uh, renowned uh, sikh scholar professor jagbeer singh ji who uh, brings out these differences as well as the continuity between the uh, larger indian traditions uh, the vedic tradition and the sikh spirituality in a very beautiful manner Uh, he has many talks and maybe aparna ji can consider uh, bringing him to this platform someday see we are sindhis 
and uh, we follow guru nanak dev very very extensively uh, we you know i would like to say that all these religions what you call religions sikhism jainism buddhism they have originated from sanatan dharm uh, whatever anybody a british may have done whatever it is and that fact has to be recognized so we are not different from them and they are not different from us whatever they follow like we have our weddings even in gurdwaras we follow the you know that ceremony also we'll have a sukma uh, guru guru that you know full granth sahib is read after that for whatever days one keeps in fact it was done for my mother also so i feel uh, yes but it's very unfortunate that some of these sikhs you know in, and yes i must tell you one more thing in sindhis you see the first born is very often given that time also to the sikhs for uh, i think it was against the muslims because if they were converting everybody so i have second cousins who are like akalis we call them akalis they follow all the five k's so i feel uh, this people have really been misguided to work against the hindus and you know they want their own kingdom and their own uh, till today it is happening unfortunately so i think they need to relook at their history and their origins that is very important that's what i feel thank you absolutely couldn't have agreed more i would like to add to it that it is so ironic uh, with this i think the liberalism past 70 years you will see more and more sikhs adopting muslim names sahil rehmat you know man uh, is tarah ke naam sikhs rakhte hain and uh, all their gurus and the sahib zadas died fighting the muslims but we have sikhs today sitting at the border accepting the hospitality of masjid you know just to protest against the present government they have completely complete, completely forgotten their roots completely dissociated from them and i also belong to such a family where the eldest son used to become a sardar uh, i think it is not exclusive to uh, any one particular community be it sindhis or others i think the whole northwest uh, part of the indian subcontinent had at one point in time this practice of uh, lending the eldest son eldest child to the khalsa pant as far as i think we hindus are concerned of course hindus is a very misnomer sanatan dharm we have never attacked the sikhs or their gurdwaras except for that congress led you know when indira gandhi died that was the only time otherwise you see uh, we have never you know ever attacked any community or anything like that so it is very unfortunate that uh, you know they are just wanting to form their own kingdom and their own state till today they have that dream Yeah, yes, but at, at the same time, I think uh, this should also be mentioned that uh, there still are a significant number of uh, uh, people uh, within the Sikh community who uh, uh, who are not secessionists politically and spiritually. Uh, uh, there, there is no question of secessionism of any kind that uh, uh, occurs, uh, and. Uh, therefore it is it is also perhaps necessary for uh, academicians to focus on uh, these uh, marginalized uh, sikh uh, sampradayas within the larger sikh community you know the non khalsa sikhs you know as uh, somebody mentioned the practice of uh, 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 getting initiation at the hand of a guru uh, like in the dera uh, sampradaya or the other sampradayas where the guru shishya lineage uh, and other rites of passages are uh, uh, followed in a certain manner uh, still today and uh, who are not uh, uh, anxious to find out fault lines and uh, highlight them uh, 
at, at the cost of everything else. So uh, a focus, renewed focus should be there on studying these marginalized sections within the Sikh community.